tonight on Arena. New albums from Spirits, Sprints rather, Marika Hackman and the Vaccines up for review, and John Kindness on his new exhibition at the RHA. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. The Empty Nest is a new play by first-time writer Ushin Flores Sweeney. Joan Sheehy and Seamus O'Rourke play a married couple who've been together forty years. The DVD player isn't working, so Sheila and Tony are forced to watch terrestrial television as they babysit a grandchild sleeping upstairs in their Westport home. They watch a bit of this, a bit of that. They bicker, they reminisce, and comedy gives way to deeper issues. Jeff Gold directs The Empty Nest, uh, which goes on tour next week, beginning in the Cornmill Theatre in Carrigallon in County Limerick. And I'm delighted that playwright Oisín Flores Sweeney joins me now from uh, the Galway, our Galway studios. Uh, good to have you with us this evening, Oisín. Where did this play start out? Thanks for having me, Sean. Um, <clears throat> it was originally kind of... Uh, Loosely based on my grandparents, but I had to age them down a little bit for Seamus and Jones. So, um, yeah, that, that's how it came about, really. Uh, why? What made you want to write about your your grandparents? How did that come about? Well, it was it was during lockdown, I suppose. I know it's a bit of a cliche at this stage, but uh, it was a lockdown play. Um, I, I was on the phone to my grandmother, uh, just asking her what herself and granddad had locked or watched um, on Netflix the evening before, and she said, you know, it took them 40, 40 minutes trying to decide, and ended up watching nothing. So. I kind of thought that's a play right there. <laughs> now, when she told you about them trying to decide over the 40 minutes, did she describe that, um, or trying to choose rather, did she describe that that 40 minute process, how many, how much bickering went on, how much fun was had, how much ribbing of each other went on? Well, this is it. My imagination kind of did the rest, even though I wasn't there, I could picture it. Um, but look, obviously you, you base some of these things on reality, but you, you add an awful lot to it as well, you know. Yeah, so it was a kind of the starting point was that, that just that line from, from your grandmother. Tell us then about our, our two characters here, um, Tony and Sheila. Yeah, I mean, they're a married couple in and around the kind of the 60 mark. Um, very different people. And I suppose that's coming to a head now that the kids have left the house. So um, the basic premise of the play is, yeah, they're, they're sitting down in front of the telly trying to decide on something to watch. Um, and I suppose their differences have kind of come to a head on this particular night. Uh, and there's a, a compromise that has to be reached or a decision that has to be made, I suppose, if the, if the marriage is to survive. But uh, whether they can do that or not, you, you just have to come and see, I suppose. You're saying that they're a married couple in and around their 60s. You are not a married man in and around your 60s at all, Oisín. I'm not. No, no, I'm I'm 13 myself, uh, I suppose. Uh, not to be cruel, but I, I do find my own kind of generation, uh, uh, maybe younger generations, a bit dull uh, theatrically. So I've always kind of been drawn to older characters, particularly older Irish characters, you know, old lads in the pub and that kind of thing. I, I just, you know, I've always find them quite, quite interesting. But the Sheila, the Sheila and Tony situation, um, yes, yeah, sure, there, there's, there is a bit of ribbing going on. There's a bit of rowing about this, that and the other going on as well. But it does give way to, uh, as I said in the, in the introduction, serious issues are discussed here. How difficult was it for you or was it at all difficult to put yourself into that mindset, into that situation? Not really, no. I mean, we've all had relationships. I suppose you, you do draw on some of your own experiences. Mm. Um, so, no, I, again, I've always been drawn to all the characters. I find them much more interesting. So I just try to put myself in their shoes, really. So, so Sheila and Tony, how would you describe 
the place their marriage is at at this point in time. How many years? Is it 40 years married they are, isn't it? Just shy of 40, yeah. Mm. And, and as the title suggests, The Empty Nest, obviously they're on their own now. Um, it's it's not necessarily set during lockdown, uh, but I, you kind of get that sense. So I suppose they're just becoming a little bit sick of each other. I think uh, Sheila wants to travel uh, and, and Tony is, is sort of uh, a homebird, you know, and he's quite tight with money. So, um, yeah, there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. And and when you describe them in the, in that fashion, it's fair to say that they both, at times, certainly verbally, are nasty enough to each other. Oh, they can be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, it's mostly playful, but uh, they're very very different people, I suppose. So yeah, they can be indeed. Well, give us give us an example of the the nature of the the difference between the two of them and how it plays into what you've written in the play. Yeah, uh, the difference between the two of them, I suppose, uh, I think Chris O'Rourke from The Arts Review described Seamus' character as a, a tight-fisted conspiracy theorist of a mammy's boy, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. A lot going uh, so, on there. <laughs> yeah, Seamus' character basically is a sort of a 59-year-old grumpy big baby, you know, which is, he plays sort of uh, worryingly, convincingly. No, he does a fantastic job. Uh, and then Sheila is kind of the antithesis of that. Um, she's very much the one keeping the marriage on track, keeping the keeping things going. She's the matriarch in ways. So she's a bit more serious, but I would say, yeah, Seamus' character maybe has some of the funnier lines, but then Joan kind of has to deliver more the the more heartfelt parts of the serious parts, you know, which and are quite moving. Yes, yeah, the, the, that is there for sure. But there's also quite a lot of discussion in and around their mortality and and the inevitability inevitability of death. How different are their perspectives on that particular topic? The polar opposites, really, I suppose. Um, yeah, she- Seamus's character, his, his mother is ill, are coming towards the end, I suppose, in, in the play. And so it's, it's causing him to think about death and, and what comes after and all of that sort of stuff where I think uh, Sheila is very much a kind of, we'll, we'll deal with it when it comes uh, and make the most of now. Do you know what I mean? Hence her, hence her kind of will or want to travel and mm. see the world and that kind of thing, so... And and you refer to you, you referred to um, Tony as a bit of a mammy's boy, as well. But to be fair to him, he is in that awful position. The the person in the middle, uh, okay, they're they're not they're looking after a grandchild at this point, but there is also looking after the older parent, is which is what he's doing, or certainly worrying and caring for her. Absolutely no. He's 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 very thoughtful, very closely attached to his mother, and that's kind of a big part of the play, a big part of his character. Mm. Um, so yeah. And that sandwich generation that, that you're exploring in that, how important was that to you? Have you seen this? Obviously not in your own life, but perhaps you've seen it with your own parents or with other, with friends' parents. Um, not so much. I think really I just let the imagination run wild. Again, it was very, very loosely based on my grandparents. My grandparents are nothing like these characters. I better better clear that up now because they'll be listening. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, no, it was just, again, you, you, you take bits from reality and then you, you add bits to make it fun and, you know, make it work theatrically, that kind of thing, yeah. And it, it certainly is fun. I mean, in, in the reading of it, you can, the jokes land. They land very well indeed. And I can see how Seamus O'Rourke and Joan Sheehy would be the perfect kind of foils for each other in in the delivery of this how difficult is it to write comedy to be funny I mean if somebody says to you go on write something funny for me there it's difficult enough thing to do (laughs) I am in funny myself actually so I mean when you have Seamus and Joan nailing the lines it it makes me look very very good Um, 
No, I, again, I think I'd be I'd be sort of an observant uh, kind of person, pick up on mannerisms, phrases, figures of speech, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, again, mostly in in pubs and places like that, which I just find fascinating, you know. So yeah, because there is a sense in in the play for sure. It's it's not like a you know a stand up comedy routine where it's here's the here's the feed line and here comes the joke and the joke lands. It's more about the situation and the dynamic between the two of them. I suppose it's it's an observational type of comedy that's involved in in writing a play. Yeah, I mean there there is no there is no plot as such. It's more of a kind of a character study, um, for sure. You approach the subject of intimacy and the nature of how intimacy might change over a lengthy marriage uh, in this play. That was one particular area where I, it struck me: Is this just are you going to tell me again? You let the imagination run riot, or did you speak to people of that generation about that particular aspect of their lives? Um, well, you see, we workshopped this play. So when I, I wrote the first draft, which was quite horrific, to be honest, uh, there's very little of the first draft left in this, you know, and then we were we were lucky enough, actually, Cork County Council uh, gave us a bit of funding to workshop it, to develop it. So we went down to Fermoy and myself, Joan, Seamus and Jeff uh, sat in a room and tore it apart and put it back together again. So, I mean, it, it's, it might be my name below the title, but I mean, it really was a team effort and, and mm. so much of the stuff that's in there would have been advised, you know, by Jeff or Joan or Seamus. Um, so, yeah, I definitely had a lot of help from them. Um, yeah. And and since this is the first full-length play, I suppose it's good to have that kind of workshop and, and co- collaborative aspect to it. One final question, um, Oisín. Why Westport? Why County Mayo? Was there something specific that you wanted to get from that neck of the woods? No, no, and I'm certainly not having a go with them. I, I, no, I, I'm from Galway originally, but I grew up there. So um, that that's where I spent lockdown. And um, it was around the time I was thinking about this play and I'd be kind of going for my run uh, up and around Knockranny. I'd be looking into these big houses, kind of thinking, uh, I wonder what they're doing in there, do you know? So that's how it how it came together. Um, yeah. So a, a real flight of the imagination is what was involved. Oisin, thanks for speaking to us this evening. Thanks for having me, Sean. That's Oisín Flores Sweeney and Oisín's play The Empty Nest opens next Thursday, the 18th of January at the Cornmill Theatre in Carrigallen, County Leitrim. A big nationwide tour. You'll find further details of the tour on Facebook if you look for Blood in the Alley Theatre Company. Artist John Kindness has previously explored the connection between what humans throw away and the tales of Greek mythology. He's drawn on James Joyce's version of the Odyssey, which is of course Ulysses, as the inspiration for a series of arresting works currently on display at the Royal Hibernian Academy. Like Joyce, the works depict the timeless epic in a decidedly modern way. Delighted to be joined by John Kindness from London uh, this evening. John, I suppose the story of the Odyssey and in particular Homer's retelling of the story of the Odyssey has inspired much art over the over the years. But you have specifically in this exhibition, I think, gone to James Joyce's retelling of that story in in Ulysses as uh, certainly a guiding light for your representation of the Odyssey. Why the James Joyce version? Well, it was Joyce that brought me to Homer and not the other way around. And really, uh, there are no specific references to Joyce's mm. Ulysses in in this. It's really Homer based, but where, where Joyce comes in is in the variety of techniques and mediums that I employ to tell the story, as Joyce did with his epic. 
Yeah, of course. And, and in the case of, of Joyce, it was different literary styles across the various episodes of the tale. Have you, you've done the same thing or something similar, similar, but with different visual styles? Would that be a fair way of describing it? I, I have I've used a lot of different styles, but also a lot of materials, different materials that span a very long period of art history. I mean, there are engravings on bones, which are some of the earliest works known to civilization, the earliest artworks, uh, right through to album covers. Um, so it, 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 it covers a, a huge range of, of periods, materials and techniques. And I, I, I talk about the museum as medium. It's like making a museum out of the subject. And... The, the works are a series of exhibits that may be in a hypothetical museum. And the the uh, Homer story, because that effectively is the story you're telling here, do you follow that? Do you stick with the episodes of that particular tale and represent each episode in turn? I, I do. I've edited out a couple of episodes where I feel there's a bit of repetition where something isn't that isn't that interesting as an episode or it's covered more extensively in another episode but uh, you know it's and it, if you going through the gallery in the RHA you'll find it in chronological order as per the, the mm. Odyssey, Homer, Homer's Odyssey it follows the story uh, keeping to your right going through the gallery <laughs> you'll you'll find uh, ever, everything in in the order of, of telling although Homer does does a major flashback uh, in the middle of it when he he is is shipwrecked and he's rescued uh, at the palace of Alcinous and he tells his whole story at a banquet. It all comes out of him. It all comes tumbling out of him when a bard, not unlike Homer himself, sings and and tells the story of the siege of Troy and Odysseus falls apart. He he breaks down in tears. And at that point, he has to reveal who he is and explain himself. And then you go into this whole backstory of his ad- adventures. Yeah, and and do do you have any little loop around in the gallery to to signify that flashback, or how do you oh, do yeah. that? Yeah, I stick I stick to that um, that sequence of events. So it goes from Nausicaa who rescues him. I, I call it Odysseus rescued by Laundry, and uh, <laughs> she she is told by Athena to. F- to do her laundry on the shore that day, knowing that she'll find the shipwrecked Odysseus, and then she brings him to the palace. So then I, then I go into the sequence of his encounters with the, the Cyclops and the Sirens and and all, all his monstrous uh, creatures and entities that he yes the the, the various he, he meets up with the, the various episodes there. But g- given the you know the ancient nature of the tale, it is notable, I think, and this again very much links into your interest in in James Joyce. Uh, it's interesting how how modernist the approach is, and how modern many of the the styles and images are. You've, you've mentioned the sirens episode there, and I'll tweet now: sirens unplugged at RTE Arena. If you want to see uh, the image that John Kindness is speaking to us about here, it looks suspiciously like an album cover, and sounds suspiciously <laughs> like an album here, John. <laughs> 
Well, uh, th th those albums, uh, in theory, belong to Telemachus, the, the teenage son of Odysseus. And I'm think, trying to think of the things he might have going through various stages of his childhood when his father has been missing from his life. And he's got a little set of, of sailors, toy sailors made from old clothes pegs. He's got uh, fragments of his comics uh, with uh, a father and, and son figures not unlike Desperate Dan and, and his nephew Danny. Uh, the album covers are bands that he might have listened to and they're also some of his guitars. Uh, they look suspiciously like electric guitars which incidentally look like ancient Greek lyres and some some forms of, of guitared, modern guitar design. And, and I'm looking at the album. Um, did you were you emulating any particular style or anything, any particular period of album cover here? There's a touch of the Led Zeppelin off it now to my eye. <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking at um, things from 500 BC <laughs> on, on these occasions. Uh, I'm looking at. Um, Greek vase painting and a lot of the works in the show are based on Greek compositions from vases, stone reliefs and, and other things but I have added uh, quite a few of my own. And, and just uh, let me go to a different image so that we can talk a bit further about the nature of what you do in terms of waste material. I'm going to put up the head of Odysseus actually now at RTE Arena if you want to look at this. I think we spoke previously John about your your 1999 work um, Scraping the Surface which is an image of a of a of a Greek vase superimposed onto a New York the door of a New York cab. Uh, and I think you found the door of that New York cab if I remember right in a skip or something like that, did you? Uh, on the street in in New York, and in, in, uh, I was there at at PS one eighty nine ninety, and and in those days, a lot of stuff was found on the street, and but little bits of stuff embedded into the tarmac in the summer, and it was a it was a great it was like a contemporary archaeology site, and I didn't know I I found a wing of a taxi cab was the first piece I worked on, and I just saw it lying on the street on my way into the studio. It was there the next day and the next day I thought somebody's going to pick that up. They didn't and so I picked it up and I just had a dialogue with it and then I was in the Metropolitan Museum one day looking at the Greek vases and the two things clicked mm. together. Is it too fanciful of me to think that perhaps some sort of god of art or the gods of the arts <laughs> were making sure that uh, cab doors stayed on the New York street so that you would be uh, feel obliged and impelled to do something with it artistically I don't think there's any any supernatural thing unless unless you consider the the special relationship artists and writers have with their subconscious and uh, I, I think it's, I, I talk about a trap door that you leave mm. open and that's that's where those things come. You're not consciously thinking of attic taxicab fragments, but some part of you is putting those uh, putting those things together and making the, the making the the embryo, if you like. Yes, yeah. Artwork. Or perhaps that that subconscious comes into play after you've seen the door and you go off about your business, and you, eventually you just have to listen to the subconscious in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, as I said, I've I've tweeted at RTE Arena. I've tweeted um, John Kindness, head of Odysseus, uh, work from 2010. This one. 
this has the the real feeling of the look of something that has it, it's like a collage it's like there's a touch of Picasso in the style of it as well maybe you'd describe the image to me John and how you went about making this well it's it's based on a, a Hellenic marble sculpture of, of Odysseus um, but I have I've built it up not physically using detritus from, mm. from skips or fly tipping sites, but making it look as if it's been made up with bits of, of flex, uh, wood offcuts, bits of old carpet, a splash of paint. Uh, I like to orchestrate uh, garbage, <laughs> really. The, and I find a lot of, I, I find I can see a lot. I look at a fly tipping site and my local authority would uh, be absolutely appalled. But I, I'm always excited when I see things that have been dumped because it's the other side of our civilization. Like archaeologists like to find a, a good rubbish tip. It tells them a lot about a civilization by the things they've thrown away rather than the precious objects that are kept. Mind you, in years to come, uh, as as a generation or as a maybe the the last century or thereabouts, we've left a lot of waste material around the place for future uh, civilizations to look at, haven't we? Yes, and uh, <laughs> I'm. It it would be an unpopular view, but I get rather excited about that. What what people are going to dig up in the in the future? Uh, just sticking with that ahead of Odysseus image, uh, uh, as I said, I mentioned Picasso, uh, Picasso at, in, in terms of style. Were you aware of emulating the style of particular artists? Maybe in the way Joyce had done in Ulysses. You know, there there are sections that are go through different styles of language and and Shakespeare plays and restoration plays. He, he uses that type of language and that type of presentation. Yeah. Were you aware of presenting in a way that emulated or harked back to other artists? Well, I, people often associate my my work, the, the constructions that I invent with Arcamboldo, the Italian Renaissance artist who made faces and, and figures out of a lot of fruit and veg and various other things. I go back further than that to my childhood where a lot of advertising material was made up with things like the Michelin man made up with tires, the, the licorice all sort man with sweets and all the like, hardware stores might have a logo uh -huh. that was made up with all their nuts and bolts and bits and pieces. And I, I would have been exposed to that much earlier much much longer uh, a time than than I before I ever saw uh, a, a work by a famous artist are there any biscuits involved in the making of the image I'm going to tweet now at RT arena homeward chips biscuits <laughs> which, uh, which I want a packet of um, forthwith John kindness no no biscuit was harmed in the making of the, of that show those those biscuits if you if you tried to lift one of those uh, off the wall it's they weigh about 10 to f between 10 and 15 kilos they're enameled cast iron and i had a brilliant opportunity in the united states to work with an, a, a a firm called Kohler who uh, make bathroom furniture toilet bowls bathtubs and they use uh, enameled cast iron and artists can work in the factory they're sort of embedded in the place and they can use those facilities so there's there's a few things in the show that were made uh, at Kohler and they're extremely robust they will mm. last 
for centuries. Yeah, you won't Millen- be. millennia, perhaps. <laughs> you won't be. You won't be chewing these particular biscuits. What size? Given the, the the weight that you've described, John, and what I'm looking at in terms of the image for those who who can't see it is it is it's very much shaped like a biscuit with those little um, beveled edges, if you like, and then um, Ithaca and a, a ship homeward. Ithaca, an image of a ship and the word homeward written underneath it. Uh, homeward was the ship that I think that uh, Odysseus sailed on, wasn't it? Um, I've lost the train of my question now in the, in the midst of all of <laughs> well, that. Just, oh yeah, what size are they? That's what I wanted to know. How big are they, given, the, just, given the weight? They're, they're just under a metre in, in diameter. And just on that on that question uh, about, or sort of going back to the thing mm. about the, the, the childhood images, I, you know, I recall biscuits having uh, biscuits you dunked in your tea, having these letters in them, logos, sometimes little pictures. Then they always had a decorative edge. So again, there's something that a child is exposed to long before you actually encounter a piece of fine art. Um, you mentioned toilets and the particular company <laughs> in their their work in and around the toilet area. You couldn't refer to Joyce's Ulysses and not have a bit of a toilet reference somewhere within the work. Where yeah. might I find that? Well, Scylla, Scylla and Charybdis, uh, are, it's a twin hazard that he has to navigate between a monster on a rock that might pick people off the deck of his ship and a whirlpool that could suck the whole ship down. And he opts to sail close to the rock uh, and avoid the, the whirlpool. I have depicted these on a, on a toilet seat and lid. And, and you couldn't find a better example of a whirlpool that'll suck everything down than a toilet bowl. <laughs> Very Joycean indeed. <laughs> it, it, apart from the, the inspiration for this particular exhibition, John, I think Joyce is, is an important touchstone for you right across your artistic uh, uh, endeavours. Yes, uh, I, I discovered Ulysses when I was a student at art school and it just it, it was a real breakthrough for me because it gave me permission to use whatever I wanted to use to work in whatever style I wanted and I could see the value in that in in telling a, telling a story and really I, I suppose I am a, maybe I'm a frustrated writer I'm, I'm a, a storyteller in most of my the work that I do and I love the narrative freeze as a form I love things that progress from one frame to another like a comic strip mm. but but that that uh, way of working goes way back in as far as you want to go in history I want to look at one further image, um, Athena in old age at Orte Arena, if you want to see this. Again, this has a, a real three-dimensional feel off it, but it, it's, it's a representation of a three-dimensional object, John. Maybe you'd describe the image to us. Well, there's an, an old lady sitting in front of her china cabinet as many old ladies in my family did. And those china cabinets uh, held treasures that maybe children grandchildren had mm. brought to to the to the person from their travels uh, i'm i'm looking at at athena as as a goddess that's no longer worshiped or respected what does she do she's immortal she can't die but there she is in old age and her her spear and shield have been transformed into an embroidery frame and an, and a, a sewing needle uh, her chariot is a wheelchair and she's got these 
Ob- all the objects in her China cabinet are little mementos of of the Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, we can even see it in, in fact, in the very middle, the very first piece that I spoke about, the Sirens album cover, the ship is suspiciously like the one on the Sirens album cover. There are certainly parallels there. Um, thanks for speaking to us this evening, John, and best of luck with the, with the exhibition is currently on, of course. Best of luck with the rest of the run. Thank you very much. That's John Kindness and his exhibition, The Odyssey, is at the RHA right now and it will be there through until February 18th. And so to our album reviews on this Friday evening. As we said last night, 2023 proved to be a fantastic year for Irish music. 2024 certainly getting off to a great start. New album from Irish band Sprints last year. Sprints forged a reputation as the must-see live band on the circuit. This Has this energy translated into their debut album, which is called Letter to Self? We will find out. English singer-songwriter, producer and multi-instrumentalist Marika Hackman follows up a covers album of two th- uh, and, and 2000 the 19's Any Human Friend she overcame writer's block to release Big Sigh her first album in five years and the vaccines return with their sixth studio album it's called Pick Up Full of Pink Carnations which is their first studio album following the departure of guitarist Freddie Kahn let's start with Sprints and a track called Adore 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 Yeah, I do indeed. Well, at least we'll find out if Kate Brennan-Harding and John Marr uh, adore the uh, sprints in a moment. They are our two reviewers. I don't think I've mentioned their names. And if you want to see them in their technicolor brilliance, <laughs> you can look at them on rte.ie forward slash arena because we are live streaming uh, this evening as usual. Debut album we have here, Kate. Tell us a little bit about sprints and their that live energy that I spoke about. That's the thing. So I discovered Sprints about, it was just over two and a half, three years ago. Mm. Um, and they uh, were playing in Whelan's absolutely raucous energy. Carla Chubb's vocals would remind you of an early May Kay in Fight Like Apes, but also she's got her own visceral energy. Um, this album has been well produced, brought in, like they've been together only four years. Mm. And the interesting thing was like they had formed a band and they didn't really know what their sound was going to be like. And Carla, the lead singer, she was saying that she didn't really want to be talking or singing about anger because she saw anger as a negative. And now she's completely turned that around and she sees that anger can be cathartic and can be, you know, a vehicle. This could be a vehicle to express herself. And that's exactly what Letter to Self is. And and when you listen to the energy there, John, particularly on that track, yes, there's a kind of a visceral quality to it, but she, it, she feels as if she's standing stock still, centred on the ground and everything is coming from the tummy right out. It really is. And that word that Kate used, cathartic, is absolutely the case here. I mean, it's just, it's it's visceral. It's, uh, it, it, there's an onslaught of noise and emotion and words and lyrics. And it's, it's extremely compelling. It's also quite dangerous. On the drive out here, <laughs> I had this album on quite loud and I just, the speedometer was going the wrong way every time, heart racing and the the foot going down a little too far on that, that accelerator pedal. That is not the fault pedal. of sprints, John Marr. <laughs> you must control your I driving must control when my listening. Driving. <laughs> but it certainly had an impact, and it is it is impossible not to have an opinion, not to feel something mm. within seconds of this album beginning. I mean, it is just, uh, it is it is powerful stuff. 
What are they singing about? Are, are, is there a, are there a set of themes? Are there important things across the, yeah. the tracks on the album, Kate? There's incredibly important themes mm. in terms of Carla in particular discovering and realising that she's exactly okay as she is despite anxiety, despite depression, despite, you know, figuring stuff out. Mm. She um, is Irish, but she grew up for a few number of years in Germany mm. and you can hear some German uh, in the first song, Ticking, which begins like a heartbeat and it brings you right into, into what the world of sprints is. So the themes she explores as well are, you know, coming out as bisexual, the um, the suffering that women deal with necessarily when they're in fronting a rock band. Um, so she, that's Adora, 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 the song that you just played, mm. is looking at that from, from that perspective. So it's completely, it is literally letter to self. What is she singing about in Shadow of a Doubt, if whether or which of you wants to take that? Well, I, I'm happy to take that. I mean, there's an incredibly powerful lyric halfway through. There's a burning in my chest. And then maybe this living's not for me. And uh, again, it is anxiety inducing, but also it's about anxiety. And this album is produced by Daniel Fox from Gilla Band, a a band that know all about singing about anxiety. Mm. Crying, urgent, urgent, crying in my head, and I am lost. As I lie, it envelops as I dream and I am lost. There's an urgent siren. There you go. That's uh, Shadow of a Doubt from Sprints and their debut album Letter to Self. And I suppose Letter to Self kind of tells us the mm. the kind of anxiety that both yourself and John have been talking about that is present in some of the tracks on the album. Uh, but that album there, or that track there, Kit, it shows us a different side. It's quite high energy for a, a lot of it. But there are times when they pull it back. They really pull it back. I think what's interesting about that song is that that's my favourite on the album. A Literary Mind and that are my favourite on the mm. album. And Literary Mind is high focused and about love and that shadow of that is really depth in the dark. It's looking at a place that she uh, felt maybe at her lowest um, and how she's come through that and that's exactly what the album is doing. But I think it's interesting as well with that song um, the reason that they decided to make this kind of music is because they saw Savages at Electric Picnic a number of years ago for anybody who doesn't know Savages they're this amazing they haven't performed in a long time but they're amazing kind of band that sing with rage fuel they're four mm. women um, and I think that that song actually reminds me of them a bit. All right. Um, final comments and stars from you, John. Well, they're an exceptional live band and something that they've done extremely well is to pull that energy into the studio. Uh, it just... So they have transferred it onto mm. the studio. Well, they have. And as, as I say, just be careful if you're driving. I think it's a <laughs> really good album and it's four out of five for me. Yeah. All right. Four out of five from you. What are you saying overall? And stars, Kate? So I think they're abs- I think we're off to a blistering start with this as an Irish release in the first few weeks of January. And I think that they're going to gather an army of fans that, that they, you know, across the next year. It's four out of five from me as well. All right. And uh, do they, are they going to perform? Presumably they'll be going around performing these tracks live. Well, they played at Whelan's last night. Last and then night. They've, and then they've got like, they've got a huge tour. So they're doing in April to May 2024, Limerick, Galway, Belfast, Cork. And you can find that on all on their website, um, and on the basis of what you're both saying, it might be worth listening to the album quite a Big bit time. before you go to those, any of those gigs if you're going to them. OK, let us move on then to Marika Hackman, uh, an album called Big Sigh, fifth studio album by the London singer-songwriter Marika Hackman. I suppose <laughs> Big Sigh, John, She uh, this was an album that she broke writer's block with. 
I, I'm guessing the sigh is the big sigh of relief. A that sigh of relief. Producing <laughs> music. It's a sigh of relief. It also happens to be the title of a brilliant track on the album. Just mm. a really kind of alternative, alternative kind of 90s-esque uh, song. Reminded me a little bit of people like Liz Fair, maybe Kim Deal to a degree. Um, I was just thinking there's been a lot of very ordinary music created uh as a result of the pandemic. I mean, it does, it's something that hasn't inspired compelling material. But, but, but yet, this album was very much conceived and made during that time. And you can sense the sort of the strange discombobulation of that time here. Uh, and it's a very interesting record. Let's listen to a bit of that uh, title track, as you said, Big Sigh. Big Sigh title track on the new album from Marika Hackman. And, you know, I was listening to that and noting the quality of the production and mm. you can't immediately go, oh, I know who produced this. Herself? Yeah. And so most of the instruments played by herself? Everything's played by herself except for the brass, okay? And she also, like, she works with her long-term collaborators. Oh, their names have just completely gone out of my head. They uh, produce Alt-J and they produce um, War Paint. Ch- Charlie Andrew Thank and, you. and <laughs> Sam Petz Davies. When you're trying to remember so many names, like, oh. Um, <laughs> I've been a fan of Marika Hackman's for quite some time. This is five years since she released her uh, mm. last studio album during the pandemic. That, was that any human friend? Was that the, yeah. the studio album? And then she released uh, covers and it's just mm. called it's a covers album and it's really brilliant but she released that to try and help her through lockdown but also to try and help her and ease her her writer's block and it's interesting she actually thought she'd never write again because she, what she she couldn't access this frame of mind she'd been so busy touring for years that when the stop happened she couldn't restart her brain and one morning she woke up and she did a little voice note of a song to herself and then she went out that night listened to it in a toilet and realised I've got it back I've got it back and this is where uh, Big Sigh comes from and this yeah. album is covering her moving from her 20s to her 30s and she's very much into guts and gore and blood and you know bodily fluids and so she keeps some of that on this album but on her previous work she's very explicit around sex and sexuality and the human kind of body and just our functioning you know this one is more exploring her thoughts and her feelings and her coffee drinking and her coffee or, drinking or, 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 or non-coffee <laughs> drinking as the case may be yeah. here's a track called No Caffeine Do you have the time? have No Caffeine from Marika Hackman. I think that's actually the, the second track on the album, if I remember uh, correctly. And the question that I asked myself a couple of times listening to this, John, was is there enough dynamic variety across the album? Now, No Caffeine has a little bit of an upbeat from it. It's certainly different from Big Say in that respect. But the um, album never really does it ever. I, I think it does. I think it does. For instance, like there's a very sparse, sparse uh, acoustic ballad, uh, the, the the yellow mile, the, the closing track. Yeah, that's a great um, track. Yeah, and, and and I love that that what we've just heard, no caffeine, where she's kind of just, it's a snapshot of her day, and she's putting in all the banal stuff that we all do uh, and, and yet the song is anything but banal. I think there's actually quite a lot of variation here. My initial sense was 
you know, it feels a little samey, but I, I percolated down and I, I think it is a grower for sure. You percolated down? When she mentions something about caffeine, when she mentions caffeine, even if she's not having caffeine, I'm instantly thinking of words around coffee. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's funny because I think that there's a lot of depth in the album in terms of the sonic landscape because it's very cinematic mm. and it opens, it sounds like a very gentle, we're going into this very gentle cinema sphere and, you know, it's going to be like art house music. And then suddenly you've got like this distortion and you're, you know, stop still. And, you know, she kind of spreads between this electronic kind of edgy, odd sound and then the pianos and the keys and her vocals come in and out like she dulls her vocals. So I think it's very interesting how what she does sonically. So the answer to my question is, is there any dynamic variety? Quite definitely (laughs) yes, Sean, (laughs) I think is what both of you are saying. Yeah, and I often find when I come in here and I listen on the big speaker, suddenly you hear a whole load of stuff going on. It did strike me with this album. It's not a first listen album. No. You probably need a few listens to to really get in there. All right. um, From you, first of all, this time, Kate, uh, Marika Big Sai stars? Well, this album is exactly what you said. It requires repeat listens and I would actually listen to it in the car but it won't make you put your uh, foot harder <laughs> on the pedal. Uh, I originally gave it three and a half out of five earlier in the week when I sent in my review but I am changing that to four out of five because it has really grown and I've, I've seen the depth in it now. All right, so a bit of a grower, four out of five from Kate on this one. John? It's absolutely a four out of five from me as well. I hadn't known a great deal about her beforehand but it's made me want to discover what I was she's done. All right. So very solid uh, markings there for Marika Hackman and the album Big Side. Finally, let's go to the vaccines. Pick up full of pink carnations. Six album from album rather from mm-hmm. the Indie Rockers Festival favourites. And here's a track called Heartbreak Kid. Heartbreak Kid, the title of the track there from the Vaccines and their latest album, Pick Up Full of Pink Carnations. Kid, this is the first album from the Vaccines since their founding member Freddie Cohen quit the band. Has that had a noticeable effect, positive or negative? I don't, I don't think so. Now, I, I like the vaccines are a band of their time, as far as I'm concerned. They came in, and they, oh, and there's, they, a, there's I, yeah. a leading statement. <laughs> <laughs> they, they said, like, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with the production. Justin Young's vocals are great. The only difference I think in this album from their previous albums is actually the lyrics are a little. There's a little bit more depth to some of the lyrics and to some of the songs. But for me, there's no musicality change, and they've had two mm. changes. You know, the drummer's gone and the guitarist is gone. So it's really Justin, I think, is the driving force behind the vaccines and what I mean by they're off their time I don't mean that they're not relevant now I just mean that sound is very much a part of 2010, 2011, 2012 Whelan's or the Roisin Dove in Ireland you know that yeah, indie dance and, and actually scene. they were part of that BBC sound of in 2011 and mm. they, they started off with a bang uh, the f- debut album What Did You Expect from the Vaccines was very well received and then they kind of disappeared mm. you know like, and, and, and actually when, when, when I heard they were releasing a new album I thought oh they're still going I think. <laughs> and uh, it's album number six what mm. were the other albums about um, apparently this one I mean the, the title is inspired by a lyric from Don McLean's yeah. American Pie 
And only the, the quote is apparently it's about the quote fading American dream. Um, there are references to New York, Los Feliz, and some other places, but other than that, you really have to, I think, search yeah. deep to find much reference to. Yeah, reference it's an only teenage bouncing buck with a pink carnation and a pickup truck. Yeah, that's yeah. What, what, where they they reference to American Pie is, <laughs> which sends brings us back to of an album, an album, and a band of their time. Um, let's have a listen. Sorry, no. no. Let me have a listen to a second track, and I'll come back to you immediately after that, Kit. Uh, this is a to walk, love to walk away. There you go. Uh, love to walk away. Um, and we were saying as I, we were listening to that, Kate Brennan Harding, mm. the question I asked about Marika Hackman and you both flatly shot me down on, <laughs> is there enough dynamic variety on this? I could ask the same question of the vaccines. Yeah, um, I don't think there's any change or sound, uh, change to the vaccine sound. Mm. You know exactly who they are. And I think they're kind of like the strokes lighter, the rip off strokes. Um, I think as well, it's interesting because Justin lives in the States. So I that, think that's where the Americana stuff comes from. And I think he'd be better off going out on his own. Um, right. I do. And like, there's, there's a few songs in the album where I feel like the bass is trying to take us into more of a Joy Division or The Cure. And it's like, oh, we're getting something for 30 seconds that's different. And then suddenly we're back into that four yeah. to the floor kind of well, sound. Well, nodding in just agreement, to, just, to quote my, just to quote from my own notes here. Because yeah. every song manages to sound both instantly appealing and then entirely forgettable. <laughs> yeah, completely. <laughs> Do you know it's, it's, it's do you know it's effervescent pop rock and I love that type of music. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me of Phoenix and Tudor Cinema Club to a degree, but just didn't have the enduring quality right. that There's those bands do. There's nothing to hang anything uh, to. Have no. I two anti-vaxxers? I'm wondering in, <laughs> in my studio tonight, waiting all day for well, that no, one. I can tell you. Okay. <laughs> Kate Brennan Harding, um, summarise and stars for the vaccines. It's, I'm going to be fair, it's well produced. They they sound, you know, the exact same way you'd expect the vaccines to sound. People who like them will like them. For, for me, I think it's not great. It's two out of five. Two out of five. What are you saying? I'm on, going to be a, one, I'm going to be a little kinder. It's three out of five from me in that I I feel that if I give it more time, it might grow on me a little more. But it is terribly samey. Um, on a positive note, it does go by in a, a breathless thirty-two minutes. <laughs> okay. On a positive note, it's very short. What very. did you say? What did you say? Stars wise, John? Uh, three from me. Three from you. Okay, so not a ringing endorsement for either of you from pickup full of pink carnations from the vaccines a lot more positive for Big Sai from Marika Hackman and quite definitely positive for Letter to Self from Sprint's Kate Brennan Harding and John Marr our two reviewers on this Friday evening Artist Googie will be with us on Monday talking about an exhibition of new painting sculpture and work which is uh, called Them and it's on at the Curling Gallery we'll have that and much else besides I am sure on Monday evening but that is our lot for this Friday night and indeed for this week Leah Murphy was the researcher Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Jamie Doyle was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan talk to you on Monday at 7 here on RTE Radio 1 and uh, Ray Cuddy will be with you after the 8 o'clock news